for a pretty long time at this point, but um, when, when I heard that Justin was offering this preaching class, um, that sounded like a, a fun and interesting challenge. I'm always, always uh, up for, for doing new things. Um, the, the opportunity to teach more directly from uh, God's Word um, was pretty exciting and, and ultimately uh, quite humbling. And so um, I, am, I am very happy to be able to, to share with you a little bit today. Uh, and I just uh, hope that the, uh, the Lord can use the, the words that I say. Um, with that in mind, uh, let, me, let me open us up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you for a beautiful summer day outside. Um, Lord, I just uh, thank you for this opportunity to gather as a body of Christ um, to encourage one another in, in our love for you um, and in our, our love for other people. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would um, just help the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable to you uh, with this message today. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, going to start with actually just a, a little bit of history. Um, in the early 1500s, uh, European churches were dominantly either Protestant or Roman Catholic. Uh, there had, had been this uh, kind of significant shift that had taken place. Um, each of those, those churches, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic at that time, was really functioning more as a state church, which means that it held significant uh, political and governing authority uh, in those particular regions, very, very closely tied to the powers of the day. A major disruption to that balance of power came in the form of the Anabaptist movement. Uh, the, the Anabaptists believed that it was uh, the, the responsibility uh, for individuals to make their free choice uh, to be baptized as a, a follower of Christ rather than uh, that uh, religious affiliation was something that could be assigned by birth based on the, the location in which you were born. Uh, the state churches responded quite aggressively uh, to that movement, seeing it as a, a threat to the, the balance of power that existed. And as a result, they began persecuting and eventually even executing Anabaptists um, across Europe and their, their efforts to curb that, that spread of, of the Anabaptist movement. The first of what would ultimately become thousands of Anabaptist martyrs was in the year 1527. A little over 40 years after that, um, an Anabaptist man named Dirk Willems was arrested in the Netherlands for the crimes of uh, being baptized as an adult himself and in turn rebaptizing others. He was imprisoned for some time in a residential palace that had been converted uh, to, to be a, a temporary prison. On a winter's day, Dirk was actually able to escape uh, through uh, an upstairs window using a knotted rope made of rags. When he, he got to the, the ground, uh, he was able to cross the small moat around that palace due to it being frozen over um, and uh, started to uh, run away uh, into the, the surrounding lands. One particular guard noticed Dirk's escape uh, and took up chase after him. Dirk ended up crossing a, a thinly frozen pond, and due to the months that he had spent in captivity, uh, he had a very slight frame, and so he was able to cross that pond safely. The guard who was following him was not so lucky, and he ended up breaking through uh, the thin ice of the frozen pond. 
as the guard uh, was struggling uh, and shouting for help, uh, trying to, to pull himself back out of the pond, the ice continued to break around him and uh, he, he was unable to save himself. But Dirk Willems turned back. He actually returned uh, to that hole in the ice, extended his hands to that guard and pulled him to safety, saving his life. Now that guard, understandably, wanted Dirk Willems to be let go. Uh, he, he, he wished him uh, to be, be free after that, that act of kindness. But at that point, other guards had shown up on scene and Dirk Willems was recaptured. He was imprisoned in a, a more secure prison. And by l- later that spring, the, the church uh, had seized Dirk Willems' property. Uh, remember the, the church and the state kind of functioning as, as one body there. And Dirk Willems ended up being executed for his crimes of baptism. Brings up a really, I think, poignant question here. Why did Dirk Willems turn back? Certainly that should have felt uh, like the the providence of God, right? To to be chased, uh, to know the the punishment that awaits you, and yet to all of a sudden uh, see salvation come in the, the form of thin ice. Dirk surely knew the fate that awaited him were, were he recaptured. As I said, it had been 40 years of uh, persecution and execution of Anabaptists. So it, it wasn't a matter of not necessarily understanding what the potential consequences were. Why did he show such love to someone who was clearly his enemy? The answers to these questions, at least in part, are found in today's passage of Luke 6, 27 through 36. And we'll take a look at that now. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So we're going to take a look at this passage of Scripture and start by kind of breaking it up into three different parts and examine them each in a little more detail. The first part that I want to take a look at here uh, is uh, taking a look at what does it look like to love your enemies? This is the, the picture that Jesus is painting uh, with these, these first couple verses. So once again, in, in verse 27 and 28, it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Note the, the beginning uh, where, where Jesus is speaking uh, to, to you who hear. 
Uh, this phrase, or a phrase very similar to it, is actually used um, as, as words of Christ several times throughout the, the messages that, that he shares throughout his ministry. When we see Jesus employing this phrase, or, or something similar to it, it almost invariably is just before or after teaching something that would be really hard for his listeners to accept. I, I view this as, um, in some ways, kind of a warning uh, it's, it's saying, uh, ask yourself, are you ready to have your worldview upended by the radical and transformative words of Christ? Pay close attention to the words of Christ when he says, you who hear, because ultimately I think what that means is it's not a given that this is going to make sense. Or at the very least that it's going to be easy. Um, taking a look at the word love here. This is sort of the, the central command of this whole passage. Love, love your enemies. The word love that we see here is uh, the, the Greek word agape, one of the, the various forms of love that, that shows up in the Greek language. This particular uh, form of, of love, agape love, is the, the, the love of reason, uh, the, the love of esteem. What this is ultimately saying is uh, seek goodwill for, for your enemies. Um, love them in such a way that you want to see them succeed and thrive. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult form of love, uh, especially when we consider that Jesus is calling us here to apply it to the people that are probably hardest for us uh, to, to, in our hearts, want to see succeed and thrive. The other, I think, difficult part of this central message, love your enemies, is the question of, well, who, who are our enemies? Okay. There have, I think, been times in history where that idea of enemies may be a little bit easier to, to nail down. Uh, surely, surely Dirk Willems uh, in our story had uh, a relatively easy time identifying who his enemies were. Uh, the world that we live in today, I think it can be a little bit confusing sometimes uh, trying to understand who our enemies are. I think sometimes we're, we're quick to elevate people to enemy status who perhaps don't deserve it, and other times maybe we have a, a hard time uh, seeing, seeing enemies for what they are. Um, but I think the, the most important part here as we think about who our enemies are is to recall that uh, Jesus did not tell us just to love our enemies. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told to, to love God. We're told to love our neighbors. And uh, I think what this command is ultimately doing is closing the first of, as we're going to see here, several loopholes uh, where, where Jesus is saying, okay, so I, I told you already, love your neighbors. Um, instead of, of trying to think about, well, well, who's my neighbor? Maybe, maybe that only needs to apply to a certain group of people, and then if someone's not my neighbor, that means I don't need to love them. We, we actually see that temptation in uh, not, not too much further along. In Luke 10, a scribe asked Jesus to, to tell him, well, who's my neighbor? Uh, surely so he can understand who, who he actually has to love. Rather than this being an exclusive command to love just your enemies, I think it's maybe better to look at this as, as Jesus closing the loophole of saying, you know when I said love your neighbors? That, that actually includes anyone that you're going to come across. Those, those enemies that you would want to say, well, they're not my neighbors. I want you to love them too. And so I think this, I, this, this command of love your enemies is really an extension of, of that idea of love your neighbors, ultimately uh, extending it to, to love everyone. As, as the central command that Jesus is giving here. 
Another thing I think that's uh, important to, to recognize in these first couple of verses is that all of the examples that are given here are uh, responses to when others mistreat us. Um, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In, in each of these instances, uh, these are not imagined enemies. These are not just relationships in which misunderstandings have taken place. Uh, these are people who actively mistreat us uh, that are, are uh being, being given as the examples in these first couple of verses. In a similar way, the responses that Jesus uh, commands us to do here go beyond non-retaliation. The example that he's given here is that love is active. It's not passive. Uh, it's not just about withstanding mistreatment, but responding to it by seeking the good of the other. That, that one who hates you, do good to him. That one who curses you, bless him. That one who abuses you, pray for him. The, the love that Jesus is commanding is active. It, it, it requires a response. Moving on to the next set of verses here, uh, verses 29 and 30. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. I think it's important to, to notice here that actual harm is being done with these examples. Uh, there's a actual striking on the cheek, actual theft, actual loss that are taking place in these examples. And yet Jesus is still calling us to show love in a free and active way. I think this is a pretty challenging point of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain here. The, the question is really, should, should we permit others to harm us? It's hard. Uh, the, the words that he says, when we recognize that these are, are active harm that is taking place, uh, may, may seem to, to lead us that direction. Should we, should we invite people to give in to their sin nature by letting them take advantage of us? Is that loving? It's a really, really challenging aspect of this passage. As you take a look at what uh, other biblical scholars have said, those who have uh, a far, far stronger background in these areas than I do, uh, I think you'll find that there's a diverging opinions here on, on how to interpret uh, these particular passages of Scripture. There are some pers perspectives on this passage that believe it shouldn't be taken literally, that, that ultimately what it means uh, is it's, it's describing a very limited application um, and how we should respond to insults or attacks on our reputation or dignity. Uh, when, when there's threats to our, our reputation, we shouldn't, we shouldn't resist. We shouldn't strike back. Um, God can protect our reputation. That's, that's one particular way to look at these verses, I guess, and um, try, to, try to understand how to apply them uh, to the, the modern life that we live. Others take a much stronger stance um, on these passage uh, with a, a literal application of the words that Jesus has shared here. Those Anabaptists, for instance, uh, for instance uh, they were the spiritual ancestors of the modern-day groups like the Amish, the Hutterites, and the Mennonites. Um, and they have historically shared a commitment to the literal adherence of the words of Christ. That's a central tenet um, of, of their faith. This commitment has traditionally included, among other things, a stance of pacifism and a conscientious objection to participating in warfare as they uh, read passages like this in Scripture. 
It is likely that as an Anabaptist, Dirk Willem's display of love for his jailer was directly informed by these very words of Christ that we are looking at here today. So the question really becomes, do we interpret these commands literally or do we interpret them figuratively? Uh, does this mean real harm? Does this mean uh, just, just threats to, to reputation and dignity um, and, and isn't intended to be applied to a, a broader area of life? I'm honestly not entirely certain. Um, I'm not going to stand here and, and say definitively this is, this is what uh, Jesus was meaning in this passage of Scripture, especially if throughout history biblical scholars haven't really come to agreement on it yet either. But I do think that as humans, we try to define God's commands in such a way that we still give ourselves an opportunity to do what we want to do. For example, um, I was listening to some old sermon on the radio a couple of weeks ago, and the message was similarly something about love. It was focused on a different passage of Scripture, um, and the, the, the speaker was talking at length about the importance of loving others. And then ultimately, he concluded with something along the lines of, well, of course, that doesn't mean that we can't still speak truth to people. We can still speak the truth and love to people and say things to them that they don't want to hear. I'm not disagreeing with what the speaker said. There's, there's precedent there, there's scriptural support there uh, with, with that approach to speaking, speaking the truth and love to people. But I do think that this is inviting a potential stumbling block into the concept of loving others. If we should love others and speak the truth to them in love, and we hold those ideas simultaneously at all times, then might we begin to consider these as equally important concepts in how we interact with others? Note that while we are called to love people, in arguably dozens of places throughout the Old and New Testament, the phrase speaking truth in love appears once in Ephesians. Maybe sometimes our truth doesn't always come from a place of love in our hearts, but no one else could know that, and at least it's still truth, so that's pretty good, right? Speaking the truth in love is an action that requires discipline and care, probably more than we typically give to it. And in its casual application, we may convince ourselves that we found a loophole through which we can say what we really want, neglecting God's command to love others. I think that this passage we're looking at about loving your enemies is similar. In trying to define its application too narrowly, we may just be trying to give ourselves loopholes in which we don't have to apply this concept of love your enemies. So ultimately, do we need to add some caveats here to this idea of uh, how we respond when, when others strike us or steal from us or, or, or cause us harm? Um, probably, of course. Without a clear understanding of what Jesus is saying here, there's an opportunity that some may view these words as justification for staying in an abusive relationship, uh, reinforcing someone else's sin of manipulation through capitulation, there, there are ways that I think that the, the extremely literal application of this can, can lead to some really challenging situations. But when we read a challenging message in the Bible like this and immediately try to think of the ways that we don't have to apply it, we might be approaching it with the wrong mindset. We might not be ready to hear what Jesus is trying to tell us. 
Let's take a look at the rest of the passage, um, and then we'll circle back to this idea of how we put loving our enemies into action a little bit later on. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is an extension where, where the, the love that Jesus is calling us to goes beyond just a response to mistreatment. This is a call to show love proactively to people, even those who we haven't yet categorized as friend or neighbor or enemy. Uh, this is, in a lot of ways, an inversion of the, the harsh code of eye for an eye uh, that was, was common in the time. Rather than looking at how others would harm you and then uh, in, in response uh, causing the, the similar harm back to them in a sense of justice, Jesus is calling us to consider first how we would wish to be loved and then proactively share that love with the others that we interact with. Let's take a look at then the, the second part of, of this passage here, uh, which I've titled, No Really, Love Your Enemies. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has a wonderful way and, and so few words um, getting to the, the heart of his listeners, I think, and, and uh, recognizing the areas that they're going to have trouble with and trying to reinforce the idea so that uh, they, they really walk away with a, hopefully a clearer understanding of the point that he's trying to make. So in verses 32 through 34, it says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. This is once again about closing loopholes, I believe. We don't get to deceive ourselves into thinking we're loving just as the Father loves by only highlighting the beneficial transactions that we make in our lives. God's love is not transactional for us, and the love that he's calling us to here is a non-transactional love. All of these examples that this passage of Scripture highlights are transactions. If someone loves you, then love them. If you loan someone money, look to get money back in return. The point here, and I think it's another hard one to accept, is that doing things that make sense according to worldly wisdom are of no value in God's kingdom. God's values and worldly wisdom are not the same things. A couple of examples of this. Um, never letting your gas tank get below a quarter full. Worldly wisdom, right? Do I, I, I've, surely I have some dads in the, in the audience who have preached this uh, to their children, right? Or spouses. That goes a little, it's maybe a little bit harder. Um, it's worldly wisdom, right? It's a good idea. You don't necessarily know where your, your next gas station is going to be. Why let it get really low? It's a minor inconvenience to keep that gas tank relatively full. Worldly wisdom. Not a credit to your faith. Different idea. Um, having a savings account. We're making investments. Wise. Worldly wisdom. Not a credit to your faith. Making your bed first thing in the morning. 
right? There's, there's been a, a big movement here. I forget who the gentleman was who uh, was the, the military guy who, who talked about the importance of making your bed first thing in the morning as a, a good start to your day. Worldly wisdom, is it wise? Yeah, probably. It's not a credit to your faith. Getting out of debt, I would argue wise. Dave Ramsey would agree with me. And while Dave Ramsey is a great guy with good advice, again, not a credit to your faith. Protecting yourself, your loved ones, and your things from harm that others may cause to them. Wise. But I would argue perhaps not a credit to your faith. This isn't to say that any of those are bad things. Worldly wisdom is still wisdom. There are, are reasons why uh, there, there are, these are, are good things um, in a lot of ways to, to put into practice. I would say, though, just don't expect your heavenly father to be as happy about them as your earthly father may be when you put them into practice. The important questions we should ask ourselves here are, how does being a Christian change the way I live? What do I do differently today because I'm a follower of Christ? If the, the choices that we make, the, the actions that we take, the life that we live is based on worldly wisdom, why do we need the transformative power of the gospel? What has that actually done to change the way that we interact with the world around us? Considering these questions when we're standing face to face with an enemy, I believe is the beginning of putting this teaching of Christ into action. When my enemy is in front of me, how does being a Christian change the way that I respond to them? Let's take a look at the, the last part of this passage then. Part three, uh, why should we love our enemies in this way? Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Our reward will be great. This is good news. But the question is when and where? Uh, as Jake reminded us, if you were, were here last week for his message, uh, Jesus' gospel is not one of earthly prosperity. That is, that is not the, the promise that we are given in the Bible. This is pointing instead to the idea of motivation related to the kingdom of God, a recurring theme in Jesus' sermon on the plain here in Luke. Love others, loving our enemies. These are behaviors that reflect and please God the Father. So the rewards that we look forward to are ones that are not of this earth. The other thing that I think is important to consider with these particular, uh, this particular verse is recognizing that our identity is affirmed by our actions. We love others because we want to be more like our Father. As his representatives on earth, when we recognize that God loved his enemies, we in turn, by loving our enemies, are a more clear reflection of him. And we see that idea uh, expounded upon just a little bit more here in the final verse of our passage, uh, Luke six thirty six, where it says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
Our love for others is based on the Father's love for us. Without God's love for us, everything else that has been talked about in this passage doesn't make any sense. Why would we do these things? Uh, if there is no, no reward uh, in a, a kingdom that exists beyond the confines of this earth, this is a nonsense way to approach life. And worldly wisdom is the best that we could come up with. Jesus is saying this as the living example of God's love and mercy. This is a, a, an important recognition here. Uh, when he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful, he's saying it as God's mercy to us, personified. Uh, his sacrifice for us provides the ultimate example for what it looks like to show love and mercy to others. I think Romans 5.8 is an important verse to keep in mind as we, we think about this application. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Recognize that God loved us while we were his enemies. He doesn't only love us once we become uh, his followers. His, his love precedes um, our return of love to him. I think it's also important to recognize that if our, our mercy is supposed to reflect the Father's mercy, then we cannot show enough or too much mercy. Trying to draw a line leads to foolishness when we consider the bounds of the mercy that God has shown to us. We see the same concept in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Uh, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thought he was being exceedingly generous here uh, and throwing out a number like seven. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus takes that, that, that generosity that Peter thought he was offering and flips it on his head and says that you can't show enough. God's mercy is without bound. Mercy here is a Greek word that's only used in the Bible to describe the Father's compassion and forgiveness for us. As we consider his compassion for us, we should not forget that it does include some consequences and corrections. That's a, a part of uh, the compassion that God shows us. Uh, that, that mercy, that showing of mercy is not the same thing as foregoing discipline. This is an important point. As a teacher, I can tell you this is an important point. Uh, I can show love and mercy to, to each and every one of my students without giving all of them A's. There's, there's a point uh, to, to why there are consequences, uh, why there is discipline uh, that needs to be taught. That's not necessarily what mercy is, is getting at. It's a different concept. Uh, we can, can think of the, the mercy that God the Father shows us to understand how we can apply it better ourselves. So I said uh, that we'd circle back to the, the point of this passage uh, here at the end, um, trying to, to make sure that we don't miss what Jesus is actually trying to say here. I think there's a temptation when we, we look at this passage of Scripture in particular to consider all of the, the possible situations that we may have in life and to want to try to draw boundaries to it and say, uh, for example, here's the situations in which I, I will love others. Clean, cleanly define uh, those, those who uh, are my family, uh, those who are my friends, uh, those who, who interact with me in a particular way, 
who is my neighbor? Let me define this clearly, and these are the people uh, that, that I can apply this concept of love that Jesus is calling me to towards. Or we look at it a different way, and, and we may try to draw a different box and say, here's the situations in which I will not love others. I show love for everybody, unless, except, but. When, when we try to, to look at perhaps groups of people or, or uh, those who uh, hold a particular ideal or uh, behave in a particular way or threaten us in a particular manner and say, those people are not deserving of love. I think that's what the temptation is as, as we think about uh, this, this passage of love your enemies and some of the examples that, that Jesus gives. I would encourage you to think of this instead not as an explicit list that Jesus is defining here. I think that the repetition that we see is Jesus trying to drive a point home, that he is truly telling his followers to respond to their enemies with love, whatever the situation may be. The examples that he gives us help us to better understand that God's love for us is more and better than transactional. It precedes and exceeds any way that we might act toward him. God's love for us is better than our love for him. Look to these examples instead that we see in this passage of Scripture, primarily to better understand God's love for us. A better understanding of God's love for us, I believe, is the key to knowing how to apply love your enemies in your own lives our own lives. The question then becomes, not is this within my predetermined criteria of appropriate ways and times that I should respond to others in love, but instead, in light of how God has loved me, how should I respond to this other? Consider God's infinite love and mercy that he has shown to us before we determine how we're going to act towards those even who may be considered our enemies. More so than just hearing these words of Christ, how did we see him live these ideas during his time on earth? Uh, we see it in a number of different ways, I would say. Uh, first, we see it in Jesus' love for the crowds. Uh, it's pretty obvious uh, throughout Scripture that there are times where Jesus wants to get away. Uh, I understand this. I spent the entire last week at a couple different conferences up in Minneapolis, and um, I'm not one who normally is uh, extremely comfortable around groups of people, uh, but I basically spent like an entire week in, in a, a mass of human beings, and it was very tiring. I, I sympathize with, with Jesus's concern here. But even though he at times wanted breaks from crowds. We see him over and over again welcoming those who, who even step outside the bounds of the crowd to ask him for help uh, to, to request being healed. We see Jesus caring for sinners. Even though they were outcasts and lost, uh, he showed love for them. Um, though, though those around him in at times even encouraged him not to. We see Jesus' love for enemies even in his treatment of Judas Iscariot. Remember, this Judas was not just someone who showed up at the end of the story and betrayed Jesus. Judas was one of his disciples. 
was someone who spent time with him. And all of these Bible stories where it talks about Jesus and the disciples in, in different situations, Judas was there. And Jesus showed love for him, knowing wholly that this was probably his, his biggest earthly enemy uh, that, that he was going to encounter. Um, and he loved him throughout his entire ministry. I think ultimately, though, the, the way that we see Christ live out the idea of loving enemies most strongly is in the sacrifice that he made for us. The, the death on the cross that he accepted, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, he did that for us. And he showed his love for each and every one of us um, in the most amazing way possible. But Jesus was perfect. What a, what a difficult standard. What can imperfect, how can imperfect people like us try to model the, that perfect love? Well, we saw with the story at the beginning, uh, Dirk Willems and the Anabaptists, for one, they, they've committed to showing love to their enemies through a refusal to cause them any harm. That's, that's one approach uh, that, that we can see people throughout history have taken. Imperfect people, I'll, I'll mention. There are many examples of Christian martyrs from other denominations as well who loved their enemies despite losing everything in the process. Of course, love for enemies doesn't only include making that ultimate sacrifice. I hope that you have some people in your own life who come to mind as you think of people who have shown you love when you didn't deserve it. I know there are some people in my life that I can think of. Um, some of them are, are sitting uh, here today, listening, uh, who showed me love at times when I didn't deserve it. But as for us, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, who is my enemy? How does love compel me to want to see them succeed? How does love change the way that I see them? I think these are the hard questions that Jesus wanted us to, to hear that Jesus wanted us to consider from this passage. As we reflect on the way that God loved us through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, um, even while we were still his enemies, let's celebrate communion together this morning. Uh, the communion elements should be on a tray under the pew in front of you near the center aisle. So if whomever is closest to that center aisle could perhaps access that tray, uh, please go ahead and, and pass that down the rows so that everyone has an opportunity to participate if they wish to do so. So later on in Luke, Jesus encourages his disciples to remember the sacrifice of his body through the action of breaking and taking bread. That's the, the sacrifice that he's reminding us of. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you wish to do so as a follower of Christ and in remembrance of his sacrifice this morning, please go ahead and eat the wafer now. Jesus also encouraged his disciples to remember the new covenant that resulted from his sacrifice, 
the one that allows us to no longer live as enemies of God, but instead his beloved daughters and sons. In Luke 22, 20, it says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you wish to do so as a follower of Christ and in remembrance of the new covenant he provided for us, please drink the juice now. So we're going to conclude here in, in just a moment. Um, the, the worship team's going to come back up and they're going to conclude with the song, Be Thou My Vision. It's one of my favorites. Um, uh, a wonderful hymn. But it's also a song that reminds me of something I think that's really important from these passages of Scripture. This song reminds me that God has a different way of seeing people than I do. That where I see enemies, he sees people that are worth saving. Um, as as we, we sing this song here in just a minute, uh, maybe try to, to reflect on that just a little bit, how God's, God's sight is different than ours and the love that he shows to people is a model for the, the love that he calls us to show. Let me close us in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for such hard passages of scripture. Thank you for encouraging us uh, to listen and respond in ways that challenge us, uh, that challenge our ways of thinking, that challenge the things that we, we want to do. But Lord, thank you most of all for giving us the, the ultimate example of what it is that you call us to do. Thank you for sacrificing your son for us, even though we were just your enemies, even though we were just sinners. Lord, help us to see others the way that you see them and that we may, may love them with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.